Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil, and find out. A Motorsport Podcast Network production. Hey everybody, it's Noons and Will. It is the V8 Sleuth Podcast powered by Repco Q&A edition this week. You bring the questions, we bring the answers. Hello, Will. How are you going? I'm super. Um, in fact, I'm Perth supered after a big weekend of watching uh, the Wanneroo Supercars round. I'm feeling very supercar-y. There's a few people that aren't feeling Ooh, so super after yes. that round, I feel. There was a bit of controversy, a bit of drama, a bit of anger, a bit of damage. You, you love to see all that with the possible exception of the damage. It's true, true. But there was plenty going on, plenty of animosity, plenty of antagonism. Can mm. I say a lot of A words in this podcast? But we've, we've been building up a question bank in the last couple of weeks through our social media accounts. If you're a regular uh, listener of the pod, you know that we do these Q&A episodes because we love to give you, the fans of motorsport, the opportunity to pick up some info that you might not get anywhere else. In fact, I don't know anybody else in Australian motorsport that does it to the level that we do it. So I'm not sure if we're really good or really silly to do this. Well, you know, we're here now. So let's do it. I got <laughs> a list. I got a list. Let's let's bowl in. Uh, Troy Summerfield, he's a regular. Aside from people who don't contest the next season, who has the worst title defense? And that is in Australian touring cars and supercars. Who's got the worst title defense on record? And I think you've got to really look at the results sheet to really judge this one, not the lick your finger and put it in the air test. But yeah, who springs to mind? Well, the the most recent one I can think of is probably James Courtney. Like he's, He won the title for Dick Johnson Racing in 2010 and then moved to Holden Racing Team. And it, it, he won at the start of the year, but it kind of yeah. tailed off very rapidly yeah. after that. He finished 10th in the points. Which is probably higher than I would have remembered him doing so. If you'd asked me, I probably wouldn't have considered him finishing in the top 10 that year. It, it was a pretty lacklustre championship defence for... For JC, apart from that, <laughs> one win in Abu Dhabi with Jason though. Bright were fighting it out tight uh, on fuel at the end. Um, but yeah, tenth in the points. Russell Ingle's got a kind. He comes up in contention when you look at the next season. Mm. He finished eighth in two thousand six. That was a big slide from where he'd been. Runner up in 04, champion in 05, Finally got that championship that he'd been hunting for so many years. And then we sort of he was never a championship contender again. It was it was really the end of that Stone Brothers go- racing golden era yeah. where Ambrose got two titles with a BA, then Ingle got his title, and, and then, then Marcus left. Then Marcus left, and then tri- the rise of Triple Eight and a lot of yeah. Ironically, using Stone Brothers engines mm. at the time. Uh, the other one that springs to mind um, is Peter Brock. And you might be a bit shocked to go, hang on a minute, what are you talking about? Well, 74, he wins the title for the Holden Dealer team. 75, he ain't with the Holden Dealer team. Mm. He's privateer for Gown Hindoff. And, of course, in those days, not everyone, even the stars, did all the rounds of the Touring Car Championship in that period. But um, he was driving a privateer car. He finished seventh in the 75 championship. But, of course, he won Bathurst. So, you know, <laughs> yeah, really which would you rather? Which would you rather? There, there has been drivers who didn't defend the title the next year, so we're not counting them in our worst title defence because you can't have a worse title defence if you don't actually defend the title. Can't lose um, a race if you're not in it. Exactly. Robbie Francovic in 87 because he'd been with Volvo the year before. Mm-hmm. Uh, Craig Lowndes in 97. He was off in Europe after um, winning with, in 96. With Dr. Helmut Marco. And that's right. Pablo that went well. 
Uh, and Scott McLaughlin, of course, 2020 champion and was gone for, for 2021. Hmm. Johnny Brown, what more has the gears got to do to match Jim Richards in the versatility stakes? It's a good question. It is a really good it's question. It's interesting, but I can answer it with a pile. How, how long a list can I go? Yeah, I know, right? Multiple target Tasmania wins. Mm-hmm. Australian NASCAR title. I can't see Shane doing that anytime soon. That's going to be hard for him to um, do. Unless he self-funds the Calder Park Thunderdome to be <laughs> reopened. Look, someone has to. I don't think it's going to be Shane, though. Nah, I've got a feeling not. Um, he, he is the most um, applicable, and not just because he's a Kiwi, but of all the current supercars drivers, you know, New Zealand Grand Prix winner, open wheelers, Bathurst 12-hour race. He's, you know, he's going to be the Mercedes again this year. Yeah. Um, rallying, ARC. Bit of a sniff that maybe he might have a crack at a world round in New Zealand, which is which is a parallel with Jim Richards' early career because yeah, he yeah he did did good did very good and again it wasn't it wasn't at world championship level purely because New Zealand didn't well there wasn't a world championship no. at that point but the rally that eventually became Rally New Zealand Jim was in a factory escort against Hanu Mikola mm. back in the day and did very very well. Till he rolled the escort off off the embankment. I think Mr. Mickler, the story goes, might have taken a young Jim aside at the end of one of those days and said, "What do you think you're doing, son? You need to mm. slow down here. You can't make me look bad." And this was after Jim had won a heap of stages in the repaired escort, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the slightly yeah. uh, panel beaten version. Yeah. But but I mean, I don't think anyone could match Jim Richards' versatility. It's one thing to be versatile to have a go at all these things. It's another thing to actually win in them all. But sure. Shane's won in pretty much anything he's jumped into. You know, he's done some GT racing in Europe as well. Spa 24-hour pole sitter. There's not um, much he hasn't done. Won the New Zealand Grand Prix in an open wheeler. From That's another good line. one. Um, but I guess we'll have to wait and see whether he ever turns up at the Australian Motor Carter Championship in his road car and takes a class win like Jim did. When did he do that? Um, 1985, when he won everything. <laughs> was it a BMW? It was. It was a BMW 635, funnily enough. In a Motor Carter. In a Motor Carter. I never knew Won his that. class, yeah. Lucky lucky someone's thinking of doing a Jim Richards book, huh? Yeah, I know, right? Be a big book. Yeah. Well, uh, well, you know, and we'll Shane- wait till Shane gets on a, t- on a bike and see what he what he can do as well because apparently Richo's had a crack at um, had a crack at like club level, like off-road motorcycle racing. Didn't or- he tell me on the podcast a few years ago he went and did some drag racing at Calder on his bike? Yep. Yeah. Yep. And he also won like this celebrity – I don't know whether you'd call it a celebrity race, but it was a challenge race where Marlborough lined up – some motorcycle races and some car races and they did a race on like 250 proddy bikes at Surfers Paradise and then swapped into Nissan Pulsars. <laughs> um, Jim won the bike portion of that, admittedly with a handicap start over a bunch of no-name guys, you know, like Greg Hansford, um, <laughs> Kevin McGee, Mick Doohan, Michael Dowson. <laughs> what have they ever done? Yeah. So. And did he win the cars? Oh, yeah. Oh, I was going to say, <laughs> yeah. it goes without saying, yeah. doesn't it? But I, I think Johnny makes a great point that he's he's the only bloke who's in the category cut from the cloth of the current breed. I mean, some of them are doing other racing here and there, but mm. not to the level and the breadth that he's doing and the success as well. And, of course, don't forget he had the, 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 the Trans Am um, thing that has not happened because he got COVID mm. uh, for about the six hour, but he's also shown an interest in having a crack at that. So... I think it's great that he's doing all this stuff. but Well, it sort of brought back that trend of drivers having a crack at everything that sort of went away for quite a long time. Mm, yeah. And, and it's sort of been a supercars thing where 
Sometimes it was political. Sometimes it was sponsorship-driven. Mm. But I, I think the reality is it's pretty hard to stop anyone from driving something unless it's in your contract with your employer, mm. i.e. your supercar team. If Jamie Winkup's happy for him, and it helps when there's common sponsorships, Red Bull with hmm. um, the rally car and Triple Eight running the Mercedes that he's going to drive at the 12 hour with Prince Jeffrey Ibrahim and Brock Feeney. So uh, it's, a, it's a cool comparison because he is the guy that when you think of who does he remind you of in terms of driving lots of stuff. It's a logical conclusion yeah, to draw, it, yeah. It's, it's a natural connection. Uh, Marcus Bettino, this is a good question. I don't think we've ever been asked this. What exactly gets recorded in a supercar's logbook? That's an extremely good question because we deal in a lot of old race car logbooks and they're, they're quite a handy tool when it comes to tracing the history of a car. But you can get tripped up with them. Yeah, they're not definitive, but mm. they're a really good data point. So I, I personally haven't seen one like from the past five or six years or so, but I've seen some from Car of the Future era and – that it's a pretty similar to what they've always had historically back through the early cams era. They they log the chassis number of the car, build date, and general specifications. There's photos of the car as it's to be presented, so in, in terms of its configuration and livery, and it also records appearances at race meetings and whether there are any eligibility issues and anything that needs to be rectified. So when we say that it's not definitive, though, those mm. which actually are Motorsport Australia logbooks, formerly yes. CAMS, they're not a supercars logbook because all the cars are logged through um, Motorsport Australia. Supercars mm. do have a record of um, all the current era cars, car of the future and so on. But for each round when the cars are scrutinised, basically all that's entered is the date, the track, as you said, any issues or items that they need to fix up for the following time or things that have been requested to be fixed and a signature from a scrutineer. There's nothing written in the book to say this car was Tickford's number five Mustang rather yes. than number six or or whatever it might be. So it doesn't really delineate specifics, doesn't say who the driver was, doesn't say what the car number was, doesn't say mm. how the car went that weekend. So if a team was to, and we've seen this in the past where we know from other ways that teams swapped cars or that they used a different car, but they might have just out of habit pulled out the logbook from the truck that's for the car that wasn't there that weekend. Yes. And that's got an entry in that logbook, but that car didn't race there that weekend. So that's why we say that they're not definitive. They're not 1 million percent proof, but they are a really handy help. And it's a really interesting question because we do talk about them a lot in our stories online and on the podcast occasionally as well. So, Marcus, yeah, that's pretty much the – the element of what is included in the logbook. And when you said too, Will, about the photos, they usually have to update them when mm. they, uh, you know, if you updated your FG Falcon to an FGX, you had to put the new pictures in the, and quite often they're just stapled in the front Over page the of the of little it. book. Yeah. They're only a tiny little book. It's, it's like a passport it's probably, size. It's like a passport size, yeah. basically. Um, but for the values of cars, I mean, I've heard of some logbooks for race cars disappearing because they were mailed to the new owner or back to mm. Motorsport Australia to be um, updated. And if they go missing in the mail, you don't get them back. And, yeah. and they're a piece that, yes, you can get a replacement logbook to run your car still, but you don't have the one that's got the original writing from the scrutineers on the original dates and because all that it, type of stuff. Not only is that the physical book irreplaceable, that data doesn't really appear anywhere else in CAMS or Motorsport Australia records to that level. No, no, exactly right, exactly right. So great question, Marcus. Thanks for sending it in. Eddie Benny asks, any chance you could do a podcast interviewing Tony Cochran? Been asked a fair bit for TC. Uh, had, a, had a meeting, had a time lined up with him July last year, but unfortunately he 
in Melbourne, we were locked down. My plan, I was going to go to Queensland for a week mm. and record a bunch of podcasts with a bunch of people, including TC. Now, he's in and out of the country. I think he's out of the country at the moment, off with, or he's just been off uh, out of the country because of this Supercross, Super X, was it Super, well, you know, yes, motocross yeah. world thing that he's tied up in, that he's signed up Nathan Prendergast, the Supercars TV head, uh, to come and do the broadcast stuff for Busy guy, hard to nail down. I have reached out to him in recent times. He's up for doing it. It's just pretty hard to find a slot, and I think he's a pretty. He's got a fair bit going on with the Gold Coast Suns, and obviously now with this uh, Supercross stuff as well. So I am intending to find a slot with him at some point soonish. Anyway, Elliot Beaton is next. Will interesting. He's watched the complete ninety-two Bathurst telecast. He couldn't help but notice. This is a real sleuth, listener, reader type question. Couldn't help but notice that the Peter Jackson team had three garages, two with the usual numbers of 30 and 35, but there was a number 32 garage, which he never saw a 32 car during the race. It's not in the results. What's the story? So that, of course, was the first year where the new five-litre V8 touring cars were eligible to race at Bathurst as a precursor to the 93 season, and Glenn Seaton Racing had the only Ford Falcon there. The only legal one. The only legal one, <laughs> yes. And in case that car wasn't ready or for, or there were issues with that car, he also entered the 35 Sierra, which of course took to the track with Wayne Park, David Parsons, and also entered the team's other Sierra as a backup as number 32. Now, Dick Johnson Racing had also done this when they intended to go to the go to Bathurst with their Falcon, which was subsequently ruled as not being a touring car. Um, so they originally had 17 as a Falcon, 18 as a Sierra, and I believe 117 as a Sierra, as a backup. Mm. The difference being too there, though, that the 32 car didn't physically appear. No. It wasn't actually there. It was it had been the, sold at that point, by that point. Yeah, it was, it was entered, but mm. it didn't actually end up getting used or physically appearing. As we've seen, some teams take a car up there, practice it, park it, or withdraw it and, and not run. But uh, good spotting, Elliot. That's, a, that's an interesting one from the quirky parts of pit lane history. I do love a bit of garage sleuthing, <laughs> especially the order of the teams at Bathurst. It's, yeah. Anyway, I definitely don't have a spreadsheet on that. <laughs> Justin Alden asks, just an observation from the Australian... We're back into garage sleuthing oh, with this. Are you serious? I'm serious. Just an observation from the Australian Grand Prix that had me scratching my head. I noticed the pit booms in the supercars pit lane only had the car numbers rather than the usual team name or key sponsors on them. Would that be due to co potential commercial conflicts with Formula One? I believe it's so. commercial. Yeah. yeah. It, not so much in the way of conflicts, but in the way that um, you'll notice if you're at the track or if you're watching, if you watch Formula One on TV um, at Albert Park, any time that that event runs, mm. when it's Formula One sessions, the supercars pit lane, of course, it's a separate pit lane, those garages are closed, the booms come in, or, or they may, maybe they're the only thing that stays or, out. Yeah. Um, basically, Formula One want it to be that you couldn't spot that someone else is there. Mm. So there's no sponsor stickers on the the um, on the booms as there would be at every other round, only the numbers so the teams know, you know, when the driver's coming down pit lane, yeah. they can spot it to swing in. It's a com commercial consideration. So it's Formula One's event. They're not deriving any income from 
uh, or well, directly from the sponsors of the teams and mm. giving basically there's no free kicks with Formula One. Yeah. It's probably the easiest way to describe it. Um, and it's a unique situation for that event and that event only. And you'll notice you'd have noticed on the podium for the races there as well, there wasn't the Foxtel branded champagne. It was just a clean skin bottle. Mm. Yeah. So it's all it's very much supercars racing at the Grand Prix, not supercars holding one of its own events at the Grand Prix. There's a very big distinction, particularly from a commercial level. And, and it must be said too that the the commercial um, ability of supercar teams is better now than it was 15 years ago. Oh, absolutely. Because you couldn't, the teams couldn't have merchandise there like they do now. Uh, they didn't have the same form of, of some of that other stuff that goes around there racing program uh, they just didn't have it they weren't allowed to have it there previously but well you remember in the tra- recent charlie schwerkolt um podcast episode the sit down chat he talked about the big activation trailer that they'd built for dewalt for, mm. that was meant to be at the 2020 australian grand prix that is the sort of thing that definitely would not have happened in the past at that y- event yeah totally totally right and and so um justin that's exactly what it's about it's all about commercials because at the end of the day that's what formula one's all about too Russell Newell asks, there was talk of an open Holden race car track session at the Bathurst International prior to its cancellation due to COVID-19. Is this likely to go ahead? From what I can pick up, I haven't asked ARG this directly, but I think that's dead, um, which was going to be a a farewell Holden, um, basically a super sprint event Mm. at the Bathurst International where any Holden could run as long as it was scrutineered and logbooked and cleared to go. Which would have been cool with the which, sort of things that would have come out, were co- well, meant well, to be coming there out There were some Group Bay Commodores that were, or had already entered, some ex-supercars. That was the whole purpose of GRM building that other Monaro, apart mm. from obviously selling it and making a quid. But that's where it was going to make its debut. That was the the plan. But, of course, COVID completely stuffed all of that up. But, yeah. Um, and I think they kind of had the feeling of trying to do that Holden thing again, at a revi- and, of course, last year the International was rolled into the 1,000. So uh, it's a case of track time. But I, I don't think it's on their radar for this year. And, and it's kind of got to the point where and un- they had Shannon's actually on board as a sponsor that was all good to go. But I think it's probably one of those things where they might be too short a track time anyway now, given mm. the categories that they've got that they'll have running at Bathurst in November for their event. Uh, there might not be room even if you did want to run it. So, Well, as we saw from last week, last year's Bathurst 1000 combined event, that that was, that was really packed in terms mm. of schedule. I don't know where anything like that would have fit a six-day yeah. schedule. Yeah, probably day seven, eight, and nine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, reckon, I reckon you could have uh, spent a few days wandering around the museum there, adding on a couple of days to the event tally as well, which, by the way, the National Motor Racing Museum. It is open six days a week, uh, every day except Tuesday. It's going to be our host location, Will, for our Friday night V8 Sleuth Open Night at this year's Bathurst 12 Hour, which we're going to host. Neil Crompton is our special guest for that. Uh, if you don't have your tickets, get on it now. Eventbrite uh, is where we're selling the tickets via. Or if you do a search on our website, you'll, you'll find your way there. Or Google it. You'll get to there either way. In fact, you'll probably drop the show notes with a link in Indeed there. Indeed, I will. If you're a good man, you'll uh, you'll do that for the listeners who can just quickly click through their phones to get it there. But, um, uh, yeah, National Motor Racing Museum, the place to go, just not on a Tuesday. Not on a Tuesday. Well, you can, we can go. You, you just, just can't get in. You can look at the um, new winner's walk. Let you endurance yeah. race winners walk out the front yeah, in the shadow yeah. of the Peter Brock statue. Which they unveiled at the six hour recently. So keen to get up there and have a little bit of a look at that. Um, Ian Evans, good question this one. 
What makes up a driver's remuneration package, i.e. are they paid from the team, sponsorship deals? Have you guys got some insight to drivers who get paid big dollars through to drivers who have to pay to get a drive? It's it's sort of a combination. Drivers can either be paid by the team, of course, or they can also have the opportunity to have their own personal sponsorship deals. We see guys like Mark Winterbottom, who I think had Brute and Munro as longtime personal sponsors. Will Davison famously has Doric as a, yep. has had a personal Imar. sponsorship. Yep. Imar, um, that contribute to a total earning for them. And sometimes it connects, it's a direct sponsorship deal with the driver and the mm. driver derives it because they're selling their helmet, yes. which is theirs. Different teams have different plays. Mm. Obviously, you mentioned Will. So those sponsors are on the car. They've become a team sponsor, but kind of through Will because they've had an association with him. Mm. Um, so there's 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 no real formula to this no. really, is there? There's Look, there's some drivers who are the stars of the sport who get paid. They get paid by their team to drive. They get paid handsomely well. They have personal sponsorship deals. Basically, if you're wondering who they are, look at their helmet. And yes. if it's not a sponsor that's on their car, it's pretty much their personal backer. Like Woodstock Bourbon on Chas Moster's helmet. Good, good example. Great example. So, you know, he goes and does promotions for them, events for them, as long as it's not a thing that clashes with a team sponsor or mm. anything like that. Um, so that's a unique thing. Then you've got drivers who are paying to drive. They are bringing a budget to a team and the team is putting them in the car because they are bringing the budget. Now, sometimes that's a case of private money. You won't really spot any stickers on the car that are theirs, mm. but sometimes what it allows a team to do, if a driver brings a budget of, you know, a handsome budget, three quarters of a million dollars, they can afford to then go and sell a cheaper sponsorship of a couple of hundred or whatever it might to be. To top it up. To basically. top it up and make it a budget to be able to run. So um, th there's a range of different situations and scenarios of how it all comes to be. And some drivers over the journey who, and it's changed so much over the last, probably since the GFC, I reckon. Yeah. Because there are a lot of drivers who just didn't, they, they stomped their feet and said, no, I've got to be paid, but didn't want to go out and hunt the money. Whereas mm. I think one of the great examples has been Jason Barguana. For a long time there, he went and found his own deals and took the budget and bolted it together and went to the team with it and this is what a lot of guys have done over the journey, not just Barg's the only one. Mm. All right, I can have that seat. It's going to cost this much. If it costs X, I'm going to go and raise X plus 20%, give myself the 20% as a salary. There's the money to run the car. I've got to drive them away and going. So that's another scenario of, of how it can play out to be. But, you know, in a field of 25 full-time supercars drivers now, I haven't sat down and looked at the full list and analysed it all. But we're probably at the smallest point of full-time direct paid drivers probably in a while, I mm. reckon. A third of the field? A yeah. bit over the third? I reckon that's probably a sensible sensible. And number. then you've got some other drivers bringing. And sometimes drivers who are race-winning drivers do bring some money because uh, if there's a bit of a space on a car, and it happens with co-drivers too, mm. you'll notice some stickers that pop up on some cars in the mid to back of the field teams that are only there for Bathurst or a round or two around it because that's the co-driver who is getting paid perhaps nothing or a very small amount of money um, but has been given contra, i.e. space on the car. So that's how they can make a buck or pay for their drive yes. um, rather than, hey, here's an invoice, um, pay to come and co-drive. Which So from all of that, you know, there's a whole pile of ways that the commercial pie can be cut. But if you're... One of the top dogs, if you're winning races, winning championships, you drive for Triple Eight, you drive for 
Walkinshaws, you drive for Tickford, DJR, you know, if you're up the front, you're up the front for a reason and you get paid to be at the front. Correct, correct. Matt Bottrell asks, last Q&A you discussed the super licence rules and how drivers remain eligible by having to earn points by doing so many races in a year. With Craig Lowndes doing Carrera Cup, Garth Tander doing Toyota 86 and other drivers doing similar, how does Jamie Wincup retain his super licence for the Bathurst 1000 if he isn't doing any forms of racing this year? Well, drivers don't remain eligible by doing so many races. They, mm. um, they earn points to their super licence by finishing in a certain bracket of um, the championship or series points in a bunch of different championships and there's a, a table that Motorsport Australia give points for and all those things. But for the – it's a great point. It's a great question. Wink Up is not racing this year. You know, Lowndes is doing minimal racing. Mm. Garth Tander's in the telly team now and done small amounts in the last few years. Those guys get special dispens. They get a dispensation. They have to apply for it, I believe. But given their resume, given what they've done, given the level of performance that they're at – there's no doubt that they qualify to drive at the biggest event of the year in the the best and biggest supercar category in the land. So, um, well, the other the other thing is, as part of the super license criteria, you're allowed you're allowed you have to have one of the things you can satisfy is having competed in a minimum of three rounds of the championship within the last five years. So even well, there you go, you even the box, yeah, don't you, as well. So even with the Enduro Cup pairing down to just the Bathurst 1000, you can do every Bathurst for the past five years and still and qualify still for a super licence. Yeah, yeah, but if you don't meet that, then you can get a dispensation to yes. to get you through. So, yep, um, don't have to worry about these guys, these guys getting <laughs> bone from Bathurst because they haven't done much racing of I can, late. I can just see Jamie writing out his dispensation form, his application. Yeah, yeah signed. Uh, to whom it may concern from the team principal. Yeah, um, just rips out the Hall of Fame me. page out of the media guide <laughs> yeah. and go, takes please find this supporting take, evidence. Takes a photo of Ian on the grid with his uh, <laughs> trophy from last year. Scott Nissen asks about a Ford, not a Nissan. What happened to the Ford supercar seized by the police in New South Wales as the proceeds of crime? I think it might have been a Briggs Motorsport chassis. was indeed a Briggs Motorsport chassis. It was dressed in later Triple Eight colours, but it never actually raced as a Craig Lowndes Triple Eight VA mm. Falcon. Mm. Um, it was indeed seized by police in Dubbo and was sold off as part of their proceeds of crime. I believe it was part of an auction mm-hmm. last yep. year that we reported on at the time. We did. Yep. It's actually, it was a Briggs car, but it was one of the first two that Triple Eight acquired when they bought the team. Mm. So it's one of the two cars that they debuted at Sandown in September 2003 with. Uh, it was sold um, in the aftermath of that auction. Uh, it's gone to a private collector and it's going to be restored by one of the former Triple Eight mechanics uh, back to, I would say, I presume, 03 spec of how it ran when it first uh was with Triple Eight, which, which is cool because there's a lot of Triple Eight cars out there, but none representative of that very first race weekend. Yeah, and you know that livery was quite unique um, in 03. 04, 05, 06 all started to be a bit similar with the better cars, but 03 is mm. a clear standout as being totally unique to the rest of those couple of years I mentioned. Hmm. Mark Scott asks, is there a chance the Nation's Cup Series will ever be released on DVD, especially the 2003 and 2004 seasons? Good question. Uh, Do you reckon he likes the Holden Monaro 427C? I'm thinking there's a vibe there that he might be a little disappointed, though, because the old Monaro didn't win too many Nation's Cup races in that mm. time. Nathan Pretty did a bit in 04, but in 03... Um, didn't win piles of them, but it, you know Brock won. I remember Gold Coast when Stokel and Pretty took one another out down at the was it the ANA corner at the hotel yep. there. Yeah, yep. straight on in the wall at 
the first lap. Uh, yeah, there, there's a chance, Mark. I think the master tapes of most of those events are around. They were made by AVE for ProCar, with ProCar back in the day. They aired on Channel 7 in 03 and Channel 9 in 04. Uh, Daryl Eastlake was commentating some of that ProCar stuff go. in, in 04. Um, so there's a chance. Is it high on the priority list? Not at the moment. But, yeah, it's around. We're aware of it. Um, I think the bigger question probably is what's the future of DVDs? I mean, mm. we're still working on them with Chevron Marketing Service. We're still pumping them out. There's still a bit of motor racing for us to release that we haven't released. But um, obviously that side of things is drifting away in the world. Streaming's a thing. We get asked regularly, why can't you put this stuff on streaming? Because Channel 7 won't – well, the, the, not specifically Nations Cup, but the a lot of the other hold, stuff. Relevant yeah, a lot of the holder. other stuff. They have a streaming platform, so they're not going to just hand out their motor racing to someone else to go and yeah. make a streaming platform out of. So, And um, then the other issue is if you're going to put it on someone else's streaming platform, there's so many out there. Everyone and their yeah. aunties into it now. So, Yeah, that, that's right. But to answer the question, Mark, there's a chance. Um, and given that we're nearly 20 years on from those events, I think it's kind of going to hit that point of, ah, oh, I remember that. If we'd released that 10 years ago, probably wouldn't have resonated as well. Yeah. But now, you know, there's a bit of Brock, there's a bit of – Oh, Jim Richards wasn't in Nations Cup by that point, but I did one round in Adelaide to start 03. But, uh, you know, John Bow, Greg Crick, Vipers, Ferrari, Stokes, cool Lambo, the Monaros. Yeah, th- th- there's a fair bit that would make people go, oh, yeah, I remember that. So, and the racing was pretty decent. Yeah, and, and the great thing was it was post-produced, um, not really hacked down from my memory, but definitely some cool cars and some, some faces and names that people have probably forgotten about for – I mean, remember Alan Simonson racing that 550 Maranello Ferrari? The in green the Cooper's livery? Cooper's yeah. livery. Uh, you know, that is one of the best sounding cars I've ever heard in my life. Mm. Uh, and that ran briefly in 04. And of course, Procar collapsed a couple of rounds into that year and then mm. they cobbled it together to keep the category going. And it, it ended up finishing uh, at the end of 04 at Malala. So, uh, yeah, uh, I'd like to, but not quite at the moment, Mark, but one day maybe. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil and find out. Jeff Bishop asks, love these Q&A pods. Thank you, Jeff. It's one way to guarantee a question getting asked. It really is. So, random with the subjects. I may have asked this before regarding the Thunderdome, but is there any evidence of Bob Jane himself turning laps in either a NASCAR or an Oscar? Good question. I I I, don't know. I can't think of it. I've never seen pictures, photos, video of Bob doing a lap at the Dome in anything. Surely he must have. Surely he must have driven in a road car around there. But in, in a race car... I really oh, don't know. Don't uh, know. If there's anyone out there who maybe worked at Calder Park in the late 80s, 90s, hmm. um, there's a few people that I know I could probably ask this to. But yeah. if, if anyone out there may have seen something, heard something over the journey or was there or knew someone who knows, uh, drop us a line via our website. We'd like to know. And if we pick up enough intel, we can share the answer with you. Because a lot of famous drivers had a crack in a NASCAR in that early or mid-87 period when the track had just been opened and they were doing tyre testing. Richard Petty, Alan Hillen Jones. came out. Alan Jones. 
Um, as John Bauer told us on his very first visit to the V8 Sleuth <laughs> podcast, he actually christened, christened the Thunderdome. With a um, crash. Yeah, he had a tie go down and, um, yeah, Bob wasn't too happy with that. <laughs> but, yeah, a lot of different drivers had a crack at, crack at a NASCAR in that time period, so I'd be amazed if Bob didn't have a go in his own car at his own circuit, having loved NASCAR for as long as he did. You'd reckon given that they built some of their own cars with mm. John Shepard, that one of them somehow he would have. Sure. Just even at quarter race speed, just putted around his track. Like what a, what a you know, for all the money that he invested and the big thinking and the effort to make that track and the whole, that form of racing happen, to not just pop yourself in for a little burn around would have been a real waste. Surely oh. he found a way to do Surely. this. Surely. Surely. Anyway, we need some proof. We need someone to someone, drop us a line. Someone surely took a photo if it happened. You'd surely. Think, you'd think. I mean, well before the days of camera phones to quickly go bang with a, a video or a – but you never know. We've seen photos of or, other things yeah, that that's true. would true. never have believed. Yeah, you never know. So if you know, uh, drop us a line. You know how to get in touch with the sleuthers. Kieran Andrew, how many uncompleted V8 supercar chassis have been built across all of the different teams? I like this because there aren't too many cars that never – that were not built to completion or even if they were – didn't turn up at a race meeting mm. to and take part somewhere. Yeah. So the obvious ones that come to mind, Lucas Dumbrell Motorsport built up their own Car of the Future chassis. Well, well, they had Jimmy White put that yes. together, Jimmy, who does the Erebus cars. Jimmy's fab shop. That's Jimmy. it, Mount Gambier, um, South Australia. Um, yeah, they were going to build their own, have their own Car of the Future chassis, but that never came through to, I mean, it was built, but I think he's ended up, we touched base in a year or two about this, and I think they'd robbed some bits out of it for yeah. some other um, chassis. So that that's one of the car of the futures that has a V8 supercar chassis number that's never actually become a V8 supercar. Mm. Uh, one of the other ones that springs to mind because it's popped up recently, Paul Morris Motorsport had a VE Commodore supercar that they never finished, and the dudes had it there for a very long time on the Gold Coast. And I'm pretty sure that's now the car that Derek Hocking's running around in in the Kumo classic series that ran as part of the AMRS at Sydney Motorsport Park earlier in the year. He had some problems with that car, but that's the car that's called Lakeside. Remember how they named all their cars? The alphabetical so sequence, L, yeah. that one that they were up to, Kawiki, then it was Lakeside, and then the next two were Mick and Nuvolari. That were the triple eight cars. cars. Yeah. yeah, that's right, that Russell Ingle and Greg Murphy drove. So that's another one that springs to mind that never's made it to V8 supercar status. Um, there's another white Commodore kicking around that, the Wilmingtons have got as well, isn't there? Yeah, that was originally going to be a team di- or it was a team dynamic built chassis that was never built up into a finished completed race car. And there was a couple of those over the over the years uh, once that team got out of supercars. Um, there's one in New Zealand that was built up into almost like a, like a GT sports sedan. Yeah. No, Nick Chester, I think, is the guy that's yeah. had it there. I remember seeing a race in New Zealand. It was black and like a uh, aqua green yeah. colour Good looking car. Yeah, yeah. It, it's externally not – doesn't look like a supercar. No. But the chassis underneath is a team it, dynamic Commodore. It's st- it's t- it is – that car is actually TD004, isn't it? Yeah, I believe so. I'm not sure if the Wilmington car – so it's the car that Gary Wilmington's got that um, – I think Young Braden's been having a punt around in here and there mm. up in um, New South Wales on occasion. It, it was a dynamic car that never was completed. I think it's got an LS3 engine in it. It's not a supercar engine, but um, that's another one that did make it. And the other one that springs to mind, Dencar built a VS Commodore chassis that was going to be – well, I think it was intended for the Holden Racing Team, and it explains why 
their cars jumped from chassis HRT 35 to 37. Mm. This was the VS that was going to be in the middle. I think it might have gone through the Romano hands at some point or maybe been built for them at some point. Um, but Richard Mork ended up with that car and putting the mechanicals from his crashed Phillip Island, uh, from the, the gearbox Gary Quartley car into that chassis and ran it in a bunch of um, non-supercar categories over the journey. That car is still around with a private owner, but it's not a... You know, it's not a V8 supercar. It wasn't built to completion in the period that the chassis yeah. was built. So, yeah, it's, there's a few other ones that were built to completion but never raced. Um, that Les Small um, Falcon. The EB Falcon. EB, yeah, that, that was one of those um, there's in that 94. De- there's that Dencar Group A car that was built up and is in all tents and purposes a race car but was never built for the purposes of going touring car racing. Uh, Andrew Events car, mm. yeah, which um, that chassis – ended up being updated to the, the later body kits but is being used to um, – I think we did a story about this on our website. Was it last mm. year, year before? Yeah. So the, the stolen Gibson Commodore in the UK that went bye-byes, um, the bits that were in that car, it, it was in a truck being transported to be painted, I think, from Something memory. Something like that, yeah. And the truck was stolen, the chassis disappeared in the UK, but all the parts remained. So those parts are going to be married up with this body and it's going to be creating, in essence, as close as you can get to a replica mm. of that Mark Scaife Winfield Commodore that went bye-byes. Yes. Tony Ryan asks, how many times have duplicate numbers been used in the same weekend? I see Sergio Perez used 11 at the Australian Grand Prix, which is, of course, Anton Di Pasquale's race number. And he recalls number 21 and 021 running at the same time years back in the hands of Brad Jones Racing and Team Kiwi Racing, respectively. Well, it's an interesting one. So they only put 11 on the Perez car, which was the spare Red Bull car that Jamie Wincup was driving in the speed comparison mm. because that's his Formula One number. So yeah. And they know. forgot the rear window, yeah. which still had 88 on <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, right. <laughs> Didn't quite know. So, yeah, he wasn't a competing factor that weekend, but I understand mm. what Tony's saying. One of the ones that sprung to mind was when Peter Brock returned for Bathurst in 2002 and then four, mm. zero, five, but there was obviously a five, which was Glenn Seaton, and then that became uh, Ford Performance Racing's car after he sold the team. So there were a couple of those events where there was 0, 5 and 5. The one he mentioned of 21 and 02 ones, the other one that regularly sprang to mind. But, um, you know, we had 88 and 888 and we had, you know, yeah. 8 as well. And um, I can't then, recall many instances of 015 and 15. No, no. And remember that for a long, long time there was one number pool for V8 supercars, whether mm. you're in the main championship or in the development series. That's why when Konica series started, there was all these cars with 70s, 80s, and 90s numbers on them. Mm. Like Paul Umbrell was 80, and Owen Kelly was 96 at John Faulkner's team, and Ryan McLeod was. And it's because they couldn't use the numbers of the main cars. It was mm. one big pool of numbers. But that changed, oh, was that about five, 15, six years ago? Yeah, maybe. somewhere around there. Where there's separate number pools now. Mm. So you do get regular weekends where there's someone in Super 2 and main championship running the same number, but yeah. obviously... Was it 2015 where Winterbottom, Mark Winterbottom won the main game title with number five and Cam Waters won the yeah. Super Was. D title with the number five? Yep, yep, with V8 Sleuth backing yes. on that NZ Falcon. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's an interesting one, but it's one of those ones where a zero makes it a different number, doesn't it? So It sure does. Mm. They are different numbers. Mm. Kenny Martin asks, Bathurst 1000 slash 500... What chassis has completed the most race laps and what does this equate to in kilometres? Be interesting to know the mileage on some chassis that have been passed to other teams or privateers throughout the years. Well, 
this is a very long <laughs> you, you could go very wild and out there with this question but i thought we'd just hone in on uh, supercar era stuff because that's what's in our database that's what we've got really accurate data on yes there's probably been a couple of corollas over the journey that have done a lot of bathysts mm. in terms of how many laps they've done though that would be another question and query um maybe one for another time yeah we'll but, note that one down we'll yeah we'll, we'll note, note it down to, to come back to you on this one kenny but from a supercar perspective it's actually a car that's going to be on the grid this year the tim slade cool drive mustang um, which started its life as a Tickford, well, Pro Drive mm. FGX Falcon. It's done six Bathurst 1000s. It's completed 933 of a possible 966 laps. That's a pretty good, pretty good tally. Yeah, you take it's, that. It's 14,451 kilometres, by the way. And this is the car that has done every Bathurst. Um, it's finished every one except the first one. In 2016 with Mark Winterbottom and Dean Canto, uh, remember that it, Frosty had a brake failure. The brake failure at the chase. chase. Yeah, correct. In seventeen, it was the Water Stanaway Monster Falcon, which, which won Sandown and led a lot of the, the a big chunk of the twenty seventeen race, and then was the first, then provided the first instance of the um, trilogy of Mostert Waters Tangles at yeah, Bathurst Turn One. Yeah, on the way up Mountain Straight. Twenty eighteen, this was the Milwaukee Davison Davison Falcon from twenty three Red, and again in nineteen, albeit as a Mustang. Um, Courtney Feeney in 2020 and then Slade Blanchard last year uh, as well. So, you know, it's it's done a lot of miles and it's basically nearly completed every Bathurst that it started, which is a fair effort. So that's the chassis that's PRA mm. 1520 for those who are wondering. Falcon FGX for a few years, then a Mustang and still a Mustang with um, with Slady and, and Tim Blanchard for Bathurst this year. Yeah, a couple of top 10 finishes off the um, tail mm. end there as well. Yeah. The next closest to that is a car that also did six Bathurst 1000s. It's HRT 042 that did 865 laps. Yeah, which was Craig Lowndes' 99 runner-up car that Scafie won the championship with the following year, but he didn't drive it at Bathurst. It spent some time with Kmart and Super Cheap after that PWR, so uh, it had a few opportunities over the journey. Um, FPR 1217, so that's Frosty's championship winning car that you mentioned before. Mm. Uh, 805 laps. It finished every Bathurst it started on the lead lap. That's amazing. That, five that's, times 161 is 805. For a driver to execute that over five years is incredibly difficult, but the odds of a car doing that over five years through different models as well is very impressive. It's pretty cool. That's mm. that's that's a pretty cool one. Yeah. So there you go. That's a, a little insight, Kenny, into uh, some of the cars that have done a lot of Ks. Of course, lots of the components have been changed along the journey with some of those cars and how many bits were in them the first Bathurst that they did versus the last? Yeah, not so many, but the chassis the chassis. It's the same car. Exactly. Last question from Tyson Arden. Now, I'm not going to read this exactly as it's intended because, as you might have noticed, my 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 um my voice isn't at its peak. All right, at the don't moment. don't don't blow it up, but give it a crack. Yeah. This is in all caps. <laughs> have you seen the remote control? I've looked all over the house. <laughs> Uh, well, I have the same issue sometimes, and it's usually down the side of the couch. Yeah, it's it's as they say, Tyson. It's always in the last place you look. Yeah, and my dog likes to pick up things and carry them away, but has not got into picking up the remote and wandering off with it yet. So, usually, I know it's not the dog, but <laughs> could be the dog. You never know. You just Who need to, you just need to train it to um, change the channel. On yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's exactly what you need. But sorry, Tyson, we can't help you with that one. 
appreciate that you thought that we could. <laughs> I don't know where your remote is, but I'm sure it'll turn up when you're not looking for it. Best of luck. Yeah, good luck. Great to have you listening, though. <laughs> uh, thanks for sitting through that one. Uh, a little bit of comedic relief to finish our Q&A episode of the V8 Sleuth podcast. Would you believe, Will, that this is episode 198? I know, right? We're, so, we're really getting up there. So this week we have Repco Supercars Weekly coming up uh, later. In fact, that's going to be on Friday. There's a special reason why we will uh, reveal why on Friday. And then next week, number 200. Yeah. Woo! The double century. What are we doing for it? Are we having a party? Are we, we doing are something we special? Are getting Matthew Hayden in to raise a bat? Uh, yeah. Why not? Yeah. Raise three bats. Why yeah. not? Let's just uh, go nuts, go wild. So um, don't forget to Tuesday, Castro Motorsport News Podcast with the boys, AVL and Steph smashing it. Award winning, we have to say. They've, they've told us that we have to say that every week that <laughs> we talk about the podcast. Obliged. It's contractual obligation as part of what we do. And, of course, last weekend we saw 600 wins uh, for Holden with Shane Van Gisbergen winning at Wanneroo on the Saturday night. There's some cool stuff that's coming out now that you can pre-order to. Jump on our web- website, jump on our online store. Um, a limited edition 600 wins Commodore, which has got a cool celebration livery that mm. eh, it's got a bit of a throwback to the original Monaro race car design that was on the posters at the time that Peter Hughes designed, who's designed this model car. So black, white, and red looks cool. Have a look mm. at our website. And there's a beautiful 600 wins collector's print that highlights and documents all the winning cars and the winning drivers from the 600. So jump on the website. Don't miss out and have a look. It's um, It actually is cool to see that livery on physically on a Commodore-style race car now because it was always looking really good on paper. It's going to be on a model. So jump in, pre-order it now so you don't miss out. You can do it through our website, bookshop.v8sleuth.com. That's us done. I hope we've answered as many of the questions as we can. We try our best. I know we get lots of them and some people get a bit shirty that we don't answer their question. We're doing our best to get through them. I do a a column sometimes on the website to answer a few more. So keep an eye on uh, v8sleuth.com.au for more of those. In the meantime, though, thanks so much for listening to the pod. We really appreciate all of your support. It's really great. Uh, If you're at the Bathurst 12 Hour or if you're at Winton Supercars, Look forward to saying hello to as many people who are going to be there as possible. We'll be back with another episode number 200 next Wednesday. Chat to you then. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil and find out.